This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Conversation. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Last week, we talked about financing climate change in this lovely continent. I hope you had time to listen to that podcast. If you did not, I'm encouraging you to take some time and listen. This week, I'm delighted to be discussing one of my favorite topics, science journalism. What is this specialization all about? Is it even essential given these COVID-19 and climate change times? I'm joined by one of the continent's highly experienced science journalists from Cape Town, South Africa, Leonie Joubert. Leonie, welcome to the Africa Climate Conversation. It's great to be here and I'm, I'm delighted to be able to connect with you in this way. Thank you. All right. So who is Leonie? Uh, Sophie, thank you. So my name is uh, Leonie Joubert and uh, I'm a freelance science writer based in Cape Town, South Africa. Mm -hmm. And yes, I've been extremely fortunate um, over the past 20 years to become a content specialist in that I focus primarily on uh, looking at the impact of climate change on sub-Saharan Africa Mm -hmm. um, and also um, food security, but specifically from a systems level perspective within cities. So why is it that the food system in our cities leaves many of us hungry, heavy and sick? So that's the content specialization. Um, But I guess I'm also a style specialist. So I don't write hard news much. I mostly do feature and long form writing Mm -hmm. um, as a way of trying to take these really complex issues and make them accessible to the layperson or to a policymaker who's not technically proficient in an area. And I do most of this through book writing and uh, occasionally um, for mainstream press, but I don't work much for the press because it's, um, it actually doesn't really pay well. Mm-hmm. And if one wants to survive, you know, one has to sometimes um, write for slightly more niche uh, academic or NGO publications, yeah. which uh, is more sustainable. Interesting. I was looking at your website and you've done such um, wide and fantastic work um, that is very good in terms of science journalism. Thank you. You're welcome. So um, to start us off, I'm just thinking in terms of science journalism broadly, because I've seen many grants and some of awards, they're labeled science journalism. But then again, when you see the stories that win the awards, when you see the stories that actually win the grants, mainly it's health. What is science journalism? Is it about health reporting or what exactly is it about? That's actually a very good question and one that I haven't heard asked before in that way. Um, But I guess science journalism is a wide umbrella term for any um, journalistic beat that looks at evidence-based science in an area. So that would incorporate health, it would incorporate uh, climate, it would incorporate anything that has an environmental sort of leaning. Um, But I think the bedrock of the discipline is Mm -hmm. that your primary sources um, are people working in the scientific community and people who are using the scientific method as a way of quantifying ideas and data and and doing analysis using that scientific method. Um, I suspect that health uh, gets uh, primary focus in the science journalism world because Mm -hmm. it's such an important area. 
Mm -hmm. um, I think what is a real problem is that uh, this is certainly the case in South Africa. I'm not sure if it's the case in Kenya or other sub-Saharan African countries, mm -hmm. but the environmental beat, which uh, in many respects includes climate, yeah. um, is generally regarded as a nice to have beat. Mm -hmm. So for instance, after you've um, assigned your newsroom resources to politics or economics or even sport, uh, then if you've got some leftover resources that you then have one or two environmental stories, mm -hmm. which is a real shame because it just shows that at a society level, at a newsroom level, we still don't understand that our, our actual survival is dependent on a healthy environment. And certainly when it comes to reporting on climate change, mm -hmm. uh, climate change issues actually need to come through in every single beat, whether it's, whether it's politics, whether it's infrastructure reporting, absolutely. whether it's health reporting, absolutely anything. Um, so uh, until we make this very important connection, I think our newsrooms are actually failing in the responsibility to a healthy democracy in terms of bringing these important issues into the public discourse. And I think to come back to your question about what is science journalism, mm -hmm. you know, science journalism is about raising these fundamental issues around sustainability, development, health, um, and bringing evidence-based ideas into the public discourse. Um, you know, journalism is a load-bearing war in a healthy democracy. Mm -hmm. And uh, you need an informed public, not just so that they can hold the government uh, accountable, not just so, so that they can show up at the voting stations once every four or five years, depending mm -hmm. on your electoral cycle, but so that they can be involved in governance issues on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, holding your municipality accountable for decisions it makes around, you know, how it manages waste, etc. You know, it's, it's fundamental to, to us as citizens in our countries being engaged in the running of our democracy. And I'm listening to you speak and thinking, uh, for example, South Africa just you just experienced a storm and a few months ago, uh, there was a whole issues of drought and a couple of years back, we had Cape Town um, issues of uh, day zero with water. Looking at the east of the continent, we've had issues to do with locust and also flooding. We had Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe countries affected by cyclones. We've also seen Madagascar cyclones as well. And we're seeing the frequency by which uh, these disasters, natural disasters exacerbated by cl effects of climate change are becoming more frequent. When you look at the media at the same time, we report on these issues when they happened, but we move on. And I don't know whether it's the same case in, in, in South Africa, because you find like in Kenya, you find when there's a flood, it's reported, then we move on, we don't even go in depth. And then after that, that's it. We, we wait until the next disaster happens. And then that's when everyone rushes to report. And mainly you'll find we do not connect dots throughout the year in terms of what is happening climate wise. It's affect every beat of our life, it affects the, the amount of money that uh, we spend every other single day. It affects the food that we consume, and it's also going to affect the decisions that we make tomorrow. Do you think it's about time that African media start thinking about reporting on environmental issues center stage on a daily basis, not just beats that when disasters happen, that's when we rush to reporting? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, Sophie, the, the, the list that you've just given I mean, you've, you've listed absolutely every single kind of climate shock that has hit the region in the past um, few years and are only going to get worse. And it's quite horrifying to consider 
you know, if you look at just what happened with Byra when mm. Cyclone Idai hit last year, I mean, yeah. 90% of that yeah. seaside town or city was wiped out. And the, the decision is, you know, does the entire town move inland? Mm. Be- or, you know, how do you stop the town from rebuilding where it is? Because it's only going to get worse. But the point you make uh, about the African media not joining the dots, it's not just a problem in Africa. I think it's a problem worldwide in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, w- each one of the events that you've talked about now have been reported extensively in the press, but very few of those reports have, have tied them directly to climate change. Yeah. Um, one, one or two of the more um, uh, well-engaged uh, media houses have done that, but most just regard it as a once-off event and forget about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to start helping both policymakers and the public join the dots um, and, and show what the increased likelihood is of these, of these um, events because of climate change and how much uh, more severe they're going to become. But yes, I definitely see most of the press are not, not joining the dots in that way. And it really is a massive failure on our part. Yeah. And it also means that we have a role to go beyond uh, because media, one of the role of the media is actually educating the masses. For example, information that the, um, the meteorological departments are giving and simplifying that and communicating to people so that they can make informed decisions, right? Very good question, uh, a point you raised there about education. You know, so, so the, the media's role is, is, you know, fundamentally about um, educating readers. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, I'm not sure what your experience is up in your part of the world, but certainly down here in South Africa, um, I see that uh, many uh, journalists, uh, so these are, you know, even individuals who have um, tertiary education mm-hmm. are not necessarily scientifically literate enough in order to understand the complexities of some of these health issues yeah. and, and report on them effectively. Um, I do understand, or my, my understanding is that, that often you learn on the job, you know? Yeah. So it's taken me 20 years to become a content specialist. Um, you know, I'm sure it's taken you a long time to learn on the job some of the complexities of the science that you engage with. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, young graduates coming out of journalism school can't be expected to know the, the minutiae of, of how the climate system works. But nevertheless, um, you know, I've also dealt with fairly experienced journalists who don't understand the scientific method mm-hmm. and don't understand why, for instance, reporting on an evidence-based scientific issue is different to reporting on a political issue where you have two opposing ideologies. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, we need to really bridge that gap, you know, to get people within our newsrooms uh, fundamentally understanding both what the scientific method is, how it is a way of, of seeking truth and identifying truth in a way that removes observer bias, it removes political agendas, personal agendas. It's not a, a perfect tool, but at least it tries to self-correct. Um, so that's one important thing. And, and the second important thing is to allow people within newsrooms to become, to become really educated in their field, to become mm-hmm. a content specialist, mm-hmm. whether it's on climate issues or food security issues or whatever. And, um, you know, if, if we as journalists are not uh, deeply uh, embedded in our content, then we can't explain it to our readers or our listeners in a way that they can uh, grasp these difficult issues. Totally. 
and I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you speak and I'm also thinking in terms of building, building um, a sustainable, you know, sustainability in terms of reporting on these scientific issues. Um, schools, when you, we go to school and basically learn basic mass communication and we do not do specialization. Climate change is fairly new. Um, do you think it's important, like in terms of media schools, we, we concentrate also on specialization. One can probably do one year, but then you have a year or, or two where you specialize in specific reporting. Yeah, you know, this is a great question and one that um, uh, whenever I'm asked by um, university students, what should I study as for my undergrad? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I ended up by accident studying history and journalism as yeah. an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And when I look back, I think that the, the studying history was a far more useful way of spending my time than journalism. You know, um, I think what I should have done is uh, done history and po- possibly economics or philosophy or politics and then saved my journalism studies um, for a postgraduate diploma or something. Because essentially, most of the techniques you are going to be using in journalism, you learn on the job. You, you, you simply learn them by sitting down and writing a news story or writing a feature article or writing a, a radio script. But what you get in your undergraduate years from studying um, a, a different uh, discipline, whether it's science or humanities, is you learn, you learn content, but you also learn to think and analyze and critique. You learn to synthesize and go through large volumes of information and lift out um, arguments. And I think those skills are far more essential for doing good journalism than than the kinds of practical um, or theoretical um, things that you learn in in a journalism degree. I know that may be controversial and the journalism professors out there might disagree with me, Mm -hmm. but, um, but I think that was a far better way that would have been a better way for me for instance to spend my undergrad Um, and a lot of in South Africa um, uh, a lot of the journalism departments do offer a postgraduate diploma Mm -hmm. Um, and then essentially it's just about learning learning to write learning to communicate which is like learning to play soccer you know Mm -hmm. the more you practice the more uh, you brain train yourself to become quick and efficient in that specific discipline yeah that, that's very interesting uh, because it's basically building knowledge and understanding and also learning how to communicate and, and broadening that before you can actually specialize mm-hmm. in, right? You know, I've also, I've encountered um, a few uh, people who, um, you know, a few years after starting their careers. So these are individuals who have had a, done science as an undergraduate mm-hmm. st- um, uh, focus. Um, so they have no humanities kind of background mm. where you often learn to write and to analyze and to do um, the kind of uh, research and writing that you would do in journalism. But um, quite a few really accomplished science writers here in South Africa are ones who have a science undergrad. And then they basically learn to write journalism later when later. they decide on a career change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also a very, a very good way to go. Um, I also remember over the years, people have often said, who makes the best science communicator, a scientist Mm. or a journalist? And I think actually it comes down to the individual. Some are just really good at it and some just aren't necessarily. And uh, and so there's there's no sort of golden rule for for how one should get into the field. Um, I think it's just about trial and error. Um, The other thing is, um, you know, I also don't think that you necessarily have to have 
um, an inherent uh, ability. I think a lot of um, a lot of good communication is something that you can learn if you just yeah. train yourself. You know. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your introduction, you said something about uh, you don't write mainly for the main uh, for the media because they don't pay so well. And I'm thinking, um, as a you think of building, you know, a, a critical mass of science journalists, but then again, you have to think of retaining them. One of the things that I've noticed in Kenya, people keep living and you mm. understand because then again, you find a science journalist that I know in Kenya, write For international media. And because, you know, you're looking for someone that actually will pay you a little bit better compared to media back at home. And then by used to find over the years, people leave and get to PR jobs. But how do we make sure that, um, you know, people are paid uh, some money that is worth their living and also like African governments and African institutions also investing in media and not just medias in terms of mainstream the way whether it's because look at health issues health issues for me in Kenya there is an I find that the reason why it's 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 actually the main kind of science uh, journalism platform that is uh, mainly reported almost everybody's there is because Bill and Melinda Gates funds that but when you yeah. look at oh. environmental issues, you do not find someone funding that. When you look into climate issues, there's no funding for that. When you look into agriculture issues, when you look into the ocean ecosystem, no one is funding that. But then again, Africa needs to get to a point where we fund, you know, um, Africa, it's of African institutions, African um, organization, NGOs, and different people fund these particular issues. Yeah, you know, Sophie, you, you've raised an issue that people were talking about 20 years ago and it's still not resolved and it's so frustrating. So frustrating. And you'll probably be talking about this <laughs> in 20 years' time. Um, you know, again, it, it comes back to the fact that science and environmental writing are just seen as a nice-to-have, not an essential. And um, uh, newsrooms um, have... Uh, very little sort of resources to allocate to the beat, mm-hmm. um, which means that many um, many science writers, certainly in South Africa over the past few years, as newsrooms have become smaller, the budgets have been cut, they've been become much more profit-driven. Um, many uh, specialist uh, science and environmental journalists have left the newsroom and are now yeah. freelance, which of course, uh, you know, pushes them into the gig economy, yeah. which becomes much more serious because without full-time employment you don't have a guaranteed income you don't get um, sick leave or paid leave or anything like that so everything becomes more precarious and then of course um, daily newsrooms often just pay a much lower rate Um, I don't know how one gets uh, newsrooms to reevaluate and reassess and reassign resources to this critical agenda. I mean, mm-hmm. so much of the writing I've done in the past two years has been actually shouting at the press for, for being in dereliction of duty on, in terms of reporting on climate change, because mm-hmm. um, without making this issue front and center, we are essentially failing our, our, our community. Um, but you know, you, you did raise the, the issue of funding writing through grants and, and government support. And I think those are models that we need to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if one doesn't necessarily get one's uh, uh, work into mainstream uh, press, mm-hmm. there's still opportunities to get published through, so for instance, NGOs, a lot of NGOs do really good research and analysis and writing and they often have resources to get ideas to the press so even if you can't necessarily write a story for a newspaper editor 
if one can write with an NGO, um, for instance, um, I don't know, Action Aid or, you know, um, uh, some of these NGOs do really, really good heavy lifting around, around these issues and can help um, spread the word through their platforms, which can eventually get to the, the press. Um, yeah. But, but I, it does, I, I do think we need a lot of um, resource allocation um, from NGOs into communications and, and some do it very well. Um, yeah. Obviously there, there are sometimes problems, you know, sometimes there are concerns that a, um, a philanthropic agenda or a global North funding agenda is going to um, kind of drive the development agenda here in the global South. Um, mm -hmm. Those are obviously issues we must be critical of. A very good example would be the Global North, uh, there's a strong um, push uh, for um, planting trees around mm -hmm. the world as a way of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah. Now, in, in certain ecosystems, this is appropriate. In the African context, where you have a lot of grasslands and a lot of savannas across the continent, it's highly inappropriate to do mass tree planting. Mm. So, um, for instance, if, the, if Global uh, North agendas try and fund anything that pushes mass forestation of grasslands and savannas that's going to be really detrimental to our ecosystems to our grazing lands and and to the carbon sink opportunities that come with with savannas and, and grasslands so that's just an example of where one global north agenda can can push something in a direction that's not suitable for our continent mm. and really communication around that um, needs to be just, you know, we need to keep an eye on it. Yeah. And that's actually part of the reason why you find that when is this the global north that is actually funding these particular science issues, then you find in most cases, it's actually the global north that is a developed country's agenda that will be communicated. When the funding is coming from the global south, then you find the issues that the global south, at, um, that is African issues um, that are pertinent to that particular part of the continent, this particular part of the continent, then takes the center stage because then whoever drives the money drives the agenda, right? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen the criticism of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, pushing GMOs in agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I guess, I mean, from my perspective, uh, I don't want to get into the health issues around GMOs. Yeah. But um, certainly uh, the problem of the agri-industrial complex, you know, where, um, where large multinational agricultural corporations start to... Um, have disproportionate influence in terms of what African farmers can and can't and will and won't use. Um, that's problematic, you know. So, mm -hmm. so that's another example of of how global North agendas um, can be problematic in our local context. Yeah. Now we're having this conversation, and I'm just thinking of someone listening to us. Probably she's in the university and she'd want to venture with this, but then she's wondering, okay, aha. Uh -huh think there are opportunities, especially given this particular COVID-19 times, climate change issues, we have mental health issues have risen, especially if you imagine if someone is going through flooding and at the same time, then COVID-19 hits and they are out on the streets and then locusts invade the farm, there's absolutely no way that person would actually, you know, not suffer from mental health issues. But then again, it's our responsibility as journalists to report. And what is your advice and what opportunities do you probably see in terms of 
reporting on science issues. I know I've asked you oh, two questions yeah. at a go, but I'm thinking, um, <laughs> what well, opportunities well, first, exist? Um, well, Sophie, first, it's really good to hear that um, your government is paying attention to this. Because I've, I've certainly noticed in Europe, the UK, and the US, mm-hmm. um, they're increasingly talking about the mental health fallout of extreme weather events and climate change. So mm-hmm. it's very good to see that your government is picking up on this important issue. Um, It's always quite difficult um, to give advice because every local context is different in terms of what opportunities are available to get employed in a newsroom or to become a freelancer. Look, I think ideally one wants to start out in a newsroom where you are forced to write quick and fast and accurately and well every single day. Um, You know, if if you want to become a star marathon runner and you've never run a, a a kilometer in your life. You have to start by walking a kilometer every day and then running a kilometer every day and then eventually mm-hmm. you're running five kilometers every day. Mm-hmm. And that's what writing is like. So so getting yourself into a newsroom is probably one of the best ways to get yourself uh, mentally fit for the task. Um, and then once you have experience and you have a byline and you have a, a record of published work, that gives a future editor confidence uh, that you can do the job, then it's um, possibly safer to become a, um, a freelancer where you can become a more specialist writer. Mm. But you know, the, the opportunities, um, I mean, this, this COVID situation is, is shocking and terrifying. Yeah. What the COVID situation is showing us in terms of how fragile our systems are at a global level, yeah. um, you know, we're seeing um, the very raw expression of, uh, you know, years, decades of inequality brought on by neoliberal capitalism mm-hmm. um, and the problems of, a globalized, of globalized systems. All of these are now fracturing as COVID forces, lockdowns, etc. The kinds of system changes and the system fractures we're seeing now, this is exactly what climate change was expected to bring on. Mm. So for any, for any young journalist who is interested in this field, pay very close attention to what's happening at a global level right now mm-hmm. and pay very close attention to how to the solutions that clever thinkers are suggesting. We cannot go back to the state of play before COVID. We're going to have to do something completely different. And this is about... Um, reigning in corporations, governments um, putting strict regulations in place so that corporations can't continue to benefit from, you know, sort of free access to the atmospheric landfall. It can't benefit from exploiting labor. Mm-hmm. We need social safety nets. We need universal basic income. We need all sorts of measures that address this massive inequality that has just gripped the planet in the last 50 years. So pay close, close attention to that because these solutions are the solutions we're going to have to be reporting on and scrutinizing for the next 50 years. Mm. Um, you know, uh, climate change is going to become the most critical issue um, for the rest of our lives. I mean, it's going to define what the work that you and I do every day for the rest yeah. of our lives. Yeah. If we can keep a close eye on what's happening in response to COVID, we're going to have a sense of the kinds of reporting we're going to have to be doing in the next few decades. Finally, to institutions, to governments, uh, to NGOs on why they should invest and put their money on science journalism. And this is not just in Africa, but globally. 
look, if we don't have an informed, engaged public, we can't have that critical pillar that keeps our democracies working. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and every single sort of sector and institution is, is responsible for how it engages with climate collapse. Um, so communicating around that. And this is about not communicating one's brand or one's personal image as a politician or as an NGO. It's about ensuring that, that evidence-based scientific issues are understood, analyzed, synthesized, and spread as widely as possible. You know, it's, it's so that um, individuals who are reading this information can adapt their own lifestyles, can modify their own lifestyles, but also can engage at a systems level um, around accountability and transparency and good governance, etc. Yeah, Leona, thank you very much. Um, it was very much having you on board. I sincerely appreciate you coming and thank you so much for um, your time. Great. Um, Sophie, it was lovely to connect with you and I really hope that we all have uh, similar conversations over the next uh, several years as we both grow and develop further in this field. Absolutely. And we should talk soon probably in terms of looking into sustainable cities. Yes, excellent idea. Let's do that. That was Leonie Jube, a science journalist from Cape Town, South Africa, discussing the importance of science journalism given these times that we are experiencing COVID-19 and climate change issues at the same time. We will soon be starting a new series highlighting technologies, research and projects geared towards helping communities cope with effects of climate change anywhere on this continent. So are you working on one? Please tell me about it through info at sofimbogwa.com. Until next Tuesday, Kwaheri, have a productive and safe week ahead. Inaindeshwa na Afribots.